Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Who did Jesus of Nazareth think he was? What was his self-identity? You know, sometimes Muslim apologists will say, find a place in the New Testament where Jesus says, I am God, worship me. You won't find it. He doesn't say, I am God, worship me. What, if you're a Christian, do you say about that? Why do we think Jesus is God? Why did he, why do we think he said he was God? It doesn't seem like he came out so overtly and said it in such plain language as, I am God, worship me. Why not? He uses, he used some of these cryptic sayings like son of man. What does that mean? Son of man, uh, son of God. Prince of Peace. What, what, what are these? What do these phrases mean? Particularly, Son of Man. That was his favorite phrase, self-referential phrase for himself or title for himself. What do we make of that? Was Jesus really God in the flesh, God incarnate? How can we make a case for that? Well, to do so, I have my friend Ryan Cruz with me. Now, Ryan is a fine young gentleman who just a couple of years ago graduated from barely, barely easy for me to say, Baylor <laughs> University in Waco, Texas. And he put together one of the best ever campus events that we have had on any campus. He had, uh, I don't know, one room and four overflow rooms. We had well over 700 people showing up uh, back there. I think that, what, Ryan, when was that? Was that January of 18? January of 18. January, yeah, January of 2018. That was when your senior year. So you've only been out of college a couple of years now. And uh, that was a great event that you sponsored there. We had a lot of people and a lot of questions. Uh, but let's, let's, Go back. You're, despite your age, only 24 years old, you have uh, quite a history in apologetics already. How did you actually get into apologetics? Yeah. So, Frank, thanks for having me on the show today. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's fun because it's kind of like everything has come full circle because I first got into apologetics by reading I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by none other than yourself and Dr. Geisler. Um, and it was your dad who gave you the book. It was, right? yeah. Okay. So, And this is a great reason why parents should take apologetics seriously and make sure to instruct your kids because in my life, it's been instrumental. My dad got me started in this a long time ago. He gave me uh, my first copy of your book. And, um, that was when I was in the eighth grade mm -hmm. and, uh, I read it. I loved it. Uh, just totally ate the material up and made myself somewhat of a social outcast at my public school. I think afterwards, because I was too excited about it and wanted to talk with everybody about it, but didn't quite have the, uh, the tact and diplomacy part of it down just yet. But, uh, it was huge for me because for the rest of my life, um, you know, up until, uh, until now for the remainder of my time as a troubled middle schooler. And then all throughout high school, um, I was reading every apologetics book that I could, and I just loved it. And when I went to college, uh, a friend of mine was on the board for, uh, Ratio Christi, mm -hmm. which is another collegiate yes. uh, apologetics ministry. And so I, when I went to Baylor, my goal was to start a, a chapter of Ratio Christi there. Now there is one there now. It's kind of a long story of why it took so long, but that that's really what, um, 
started my days in college ministry. And so my entire time at Baylor, uh, worked in a, a ministry role there in apologetics. And now that I'm out trying to keep it going. Well, you started a club there at Baylor because they wouldn't they wouldn't approve the Ratio Christi Club. What did you call that club and yes, how did you get it started? For sure. So we we did. We struggled with that. And there were some some interesting political reasons that, that were involved. But we called the group Oso Logos, and that's still what it's called today. Now it is formerly affiliated with Ratio Christi, but it wasn't at the time. But uh, yeah, I, honestly, that group's been a, a huge blessing in my life. It was a great opportunity to get my first start into apologetics and into um, instruction and teaching, but also just really character building, growing a group, learning how to organize um, around a common cause. And they're still going today and doing great things. Now, since then, you have spoken several times at other universities on yes. Apologetics Matters. You've spoken at UT Dallas several times. In fact, one of the one of the presentations you've given on the college campus is the topic we're going to talk about today, who did Jesus think he was? But before we get there, uh, I know there are young people listening. I know there are parents listening. You went to Baylor University. Now, Baylor, at least ostensibly, is a Christian university. It has a Christian founding, Christian heritage. The faculty need to have certain beliefs, at least technically they do. We don't always know if they do. But what did you find in terms of of, um, I guess, beliefs and uh, uh, not only of the faculty, but of the students, would, would, would you consider the students conservative evangelical Christians and the faculty as well or not? Uh, well, it depends. So, and that's the answer for everything. I feel mm -hmm. like, um, one of the biggest things that I combated at Baylor in terms of uh, our ministry was apathy. Because at Baylor, everything is ostensibly Christian, mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that there's not non-Christians on campus. There certainly are. But the majority of the people that you run into, and I shouldn't say the majority of the people, but of those that we engage with a lot and had the most difficulty with, it was usually people who just didn't care. Mm. Um, and sometimes this is because, you know, at that point in their life as young people, they just didn't see the need to, um, you know, think really critically about the intellectual side of the faith because, you know, we're more focused on getting a job and making money and doing those kinds of things that you're, you know, in college for to begin with, or at least you think you are. Mm -hmm. um, so that was part of it. But another part, that you can't help but ignore uh, or you can't ignore is that at every university and Baylor's no exception, any religion classes you take tend to downplay um, the faith element and, and the inspiration of scripture. And so when you're in a, a Christian scripture class and, you know, you're told that the gospels probably were not written by the apostles. You know, Mark is not Peter's testimony. Mm -hmm. Matthew didn't write Matthew. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Luke, Luke wasn't an apostle. So mm -hmm. who's his sources? Mm -hmm. John was probably written in the second century. You know, that's, really, these yeah. are the kinds of things right. that you hear. Mm -hmm. And if you hear that, your view of scripture tends to go down a little mm -hmm. bit. I know people who actually were very ardent evangelicals prior to their Christian scriptures class. And after their Christian scriptures class, they weren't. Some of them wouldn't consider themselves Christians anymore. And others just, you know, they couldn't figure out the solution to that problem. And so they just didn't try. You know, I know, and I've asked Gary Habermas this because he's the real expert on it. I've asked Gary questions such as, I know that many of the New Testament documents are considered by the scholars of the world to be, have been written late after 70 AD. And here you are saying that the Gospel of John's written in the second century. And I asked Gary, what evidence do these scholars have that they're written late? Because I think there's great evidence they're written prior to 70, early. 
And Gary said, they don't. They just yeah. assume it. Did, do you remember getting evidence from these people to say that the New Testament documents are written after 70? It's No, it's usually... Just assumed. Yeah, it's usually assumed. I mean, one of the main assumptions that you have, especially with the synoptics, mm -hmm. is that, you know, prophetic capabilities are impossible. And oh, so Jesus, okay. you know, Jesus yeah. seeming to predict the destruction of the mm -hmm. temple couldn't you know he couldn't do that there's no way he could have known yes. that it was going to be destroyed so it's an anti-supernatural bias right, right off the bat and so they okay, assume yeah. it's got to be after 70 mm -hmm. because of you know he couldn't have ever have predicted the temple and john is assumed to be so late because of his high christology right and it's like and the the assumption is jesus didn't think he was god which is uh -huh. what we're going to be talking about today yeah and so if jesus didn't think he was god and you have this gospel that so clearly you know paints a portrait of him as divine it must have been later because there's right. no way that, you know, you could have early testimony with such a high Christology. Right. Now, you ran into this. You did not take any classes at Baylor that you would consider to be taught by evangelical Christians then who, who gave uh, a fair view of the evidence. Um, in my case, I didn't. But that is both a commentary on it's as much a commentary on me as it is the university. Mm -hmm. I was short sighted and didn't continue in the religion department at okay. Baylor. Um, and I, I was mostly focused in the business school. There are some good evangelicals in, in that department. Uh -huh. um, but then there's some that, that are not. And so at Baylor, you've got a little bit of a mix, but that's actually much more favorable than you have at most universities. Most places you still have yes. people firmly rooted in the German liberal criticism of the late 19th and early 20th mm -hmm. century. Yeah. They haven't gotten up to the times. Right. And uh, so friends, if you, have this kind of skepticism at a so-called Christian school. What must you have at the secular schools? Well, who did Jesus think he was? Can we really show that he did consider himself to be God? That's what we're going to be talking about. I'm talking about it with my friend Ryan Cruz, C-R-E-W-S, not like Tom Cruise. We're back in two minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, can you help me with something? Can you help me get this podcast before more people? Not only tell your friends about it, but go up to iTunes and put a five-star review on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. If you do that, it will help us move the podcast up the charts so more people will hear it. Thank you so much for partnering with me on this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Such comfort. And yet, can you imagine having never read those words for yourself? Hi, it's Michael Woolworth with Bible League International, and we've been engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years for $5 a Bible. You know, there are Christians in Asia, Africa, Europe, Latin America, and the Middle East who've never held a Bible in their own hands because of corrupt governments that oppress, majority religions that persecute, and other conditions related to living remotely and in extreme poverty. Some of these new believers, they memorize long stretches of Scripture, while others cherish the word they heard preached on Sunday until they can gather again. They long for God's word to hold in their hands and to cherish in their hearts as they grow in His grace and knowledge. Details on how you can be involved are at sendbiblesnow.com. That's sendbiblesnow.com or by calling Bible League at 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-W-O-R-D. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, a ministry dedicated to helping save preborn babies from abortion. I sense God's broken heart over the issue of abortion. You see, he sees every little baby that's being formed in the mother's womb, and it breaks his heart to see when the lifetime that he has planned for them is taken from them violently so often. Preborn is the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. By letting a mother see her baby on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. 
Would you join with Preborn and American Family Radio and help save 2,500 babies this week? One ultrasound session costs $28, and $140 will sponsor five ultrasounds. Or maybe you could buy an ultrasound machine for $15,000. Call now at 877-616-2396 or visit AFR.net. That's AFR.net. Your love can save a life. Who did Jesus really think he was? You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. If you haven't downloaded the Crossexamined app, why not? It's free. Two words in the app store, crossexamined, downloaded. Over 200,000 people have downloaded it. They're using it. This podcast, this radio program is on there, as well as our TV show, which is on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on DirecTV channel 378. It's also on Roku. For Look for NRB TV, National Religious Broadcasters. We're going through the essentials of Christianity on TV right now. You might want to check out that series uh, and uh, download the app. It's also got a quick answer section on there. There's plenty of resources on the app. And one of the questions we get a lot, my guest today is Ryan Cruz. One of the questions we get a lot is, well, who did Jesus think he was? Uh, you're claiming he claimed to be God. Nowhere, at least it seems in the New Testament, does Jesus say, I am God, worship me. Now, my friend Ryan Cruz has uh, taught on this at the university level, so I thought it would be good to have Ryan here to talk about this issue. Ryan, there are many um, ways it seems that Christians claim Jesus claimed to be God. One of them is this phrase that he used or title he gave himself several times called Son of Man. What does that mean? Where does that come from? Yeah, so that is a great question, and it's a funny one, because when I was growing up and reading the scriptures, I had no idea what Son of Man you meant. Know, you know, it, it makes it seem like, oh, is this is he claiming to be human here? And yeah. when he claims the Son of God, he claims to be divine. Is that what it's about? Or It's not, okay. and, but that is what a lot of people think, yeah. and that's kind of, I, it's funny, at one point when I was a kid, I almost thought that I had accidentally read something incorrectly, and I read Son of Man, I was like, but that can't be right, he's God. Why would he be uh, saying that he's uh, the Son of Man? Uh-huh. But then you go back and you look, and it's like, no, he is saying that over and over and over and over right. again. And so there are many critics who will say this is just Jesus' way of using uh, an Aramaic idiom that means I'm a human, you know, just like you. But there's definitely something more going on here. And you can tell by the way that Jesus uses the phrase that it's not merely meant to say I am a human just like you guys. Um, In Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, there is a uh, prophetic passage where Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, who's God, by the way, as a quick aside, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And that's what Jesus is referring to. And you can tell from the way that he uses the phrase. I mean, when Jesus is in his examination before Caiaphas, the high priest, Mm -hmm. after he's been arrested, Mm-hmm. Caiaphas challenges him and asks him, he said, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? Mm. And the way that Jesus responds is he says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Mm. And there's that, that reference to coming on the clouds. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that Jesus is hearkening back to this Daniel seven prophecy. Right. And 
the, coming in the clouds, I've heard Dr. Gary Habermas say this and other New Testament scholars, in the ancient world, you don't come on the clouds unless you are divine. That's not just some flippant phrase that he's saying here. He is very, very deliberately hearkening back to this Danielic vision in Daniel chapter 7. And and also worth mentioning there is his statement that he'll be seated at the right hand of power. Mm-hmm. That comes from Psalm 110, and that's also a characteristic of the divine. Uh, and you can tell that everybody in the room understood what Jesus was saying here, because Caiaphas tears his clothes uh, at Jesus' statement, and that's a sign of blasphemy, mm-hmm. right? And so that's the reason why they wanted to kill Jesus, because he had committed the highest form of blasphemy in their mind, because he claimed he was God in their strictly monotheistic society when they did not believe that he was. So what does this character in Daniel chapter 7 do, this son of man character? He is ascending, did you say? He's ascending to God? Well, so how is it put? Yeah, with with all it says that he comes before the ancient of days comes before the ancient of days to him is given dominion and glory and Mm -hmm. power. And, you know, prophecies are are interesting, especially to us moderns who aren't used to speaking that way. Right. Um, And, you know, the thing is, is when Daniel was writing this, there was no conception of the Trinity. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a that theology has been filled in after the fact. Mm -hmm. And so now we have this fully fleshed out idea of the father, the son and the Holy Spirit. We have it now. They did have a concept of of a plurality of some kind in the Godhead, because there's two Yahwehs in several places in the Old Testament. But I agree it wasn't formed in a doctrine the way it is today to us. So it must have been a little bit cryptic here. Right. But there's no doubt in most theologians' minds who study this that the character in Daniel 7 is a divine being. Right. And so if you take that, right, you understand that this character, the son of man, is a divine being. And then you have Yahweh, who says that he is, you know, he is the only God, the one true God. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to combine those two, right? Because they're, they're right. both coming from the same source. They have to work together. Uh, you understand that Jesus is claiming to be part of this Godhead. And Caiaphas knew that. Caiaphas knew that too. Yeah. Now Caiaphas did not believe it, right. but he understood what Jesus was saying. His reaction okay. is telling of that. Mm-hmm. So Son of Man, he uses several times of himself. I think that's his favorite title for himself. It is, yeah. But uh, here in America, we want things to be black and white, straightforward. Why doesn't Jesus just come out and say, look, I am God, worship me. This is the Muslim claim, right? Now, if, by the way, if you read uh, Greg Kokel's new book, you need to get it. Well, it's an updated book called Tactics. Uh, Greg deals with this by saying when somebody says, Uh, find somewhere in the Bible that Jesus says, I am God, worship me. You don't have to go, well, I I guess I have to find that in order for Jesus to be God. You could ask a question back by saying something like, is that the only way Jesus could claim to be God by using those words? (laughs) Well, no, but the question does remain though, Ryan, we're talking to Ryan Cruz, who uh, is, uh, uh, well, actually, you're actually, I haven't told our listeners this, you're on the board of crossexamine.org because we wanted somebody who uh, is intelligent, has been on the college campus recently, knows apologetics. So you're, you're our youngest board member for good reason. <laughs> but, um, uh, okay, you know how you get older, Ryan? You start to lose your train of uh, train. Where was I going? We with were that? going with uh, why didn't Jesus come out? Yeah, and why didn't you? That's what yeah. I wanted to say. What's your perspective on that? Because you hear people say, yeah. "Well, Jesus could have been clearer. He was clear to he was clear to uh, Caiaphas, right? And he was also clear in John eight, which we'll get to in a minute. But 
He could have been clearer, couldn't he? Why he, didn't he? He absolutely could have been, but there's very good reasons for why he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, there were very uh, clear expectations in Jewish society about what the Messiah was supposed to be, what he was supposed to be like, what he was supposed to do. Uh, Second Temple Jews understood that the Messiah was going to be a military leader who would come in and be the king over the nation of Israel, and they were longing for him to free Israel from oppression. In this case, uh, they were currently under the Romans, but in the centuries before that, they'd been under the Greeks mm-hmm. and then the Persians and the Babylonians. So Israel has just gone from one overlord to another. And their expectation is that their Messiah, their deliverer, would be somebody who would come with power and eliminate those people and, and raise Israel back up. And that's not what Jesus came to do yet in that sense. That wasn't his mission in his first incarnation here on the earth. And so if Jesus just came out and said, I am the Messiah, I am God, there's a very high likelihood that the expectation would have been, okay, well, you need to get rid of Rome. Mm -hmm. But that's not what he came to do. And Jesus had a ministry to accomplish first. And so he was much better served by keeping his identity uh, much more obscure in the early years of his ministry. And it wasn't until his ministry had concluded and he was ready to go to the cross during what's often called his Passion Week, the week before the crucifixion, that he really comes out and starts being more clear about who he is. Yes, and uh, of course in John chapter 8, I think it's one of the clearest passages, Jesus claiming to be God when he's talking to the Pharisees, who, by the way, just prior to this passage, speaks to these Pharisees who were the religious and political leaders of the day and says, your father is the devil. Imagine saying that to somebody. <laughs> Jesus was tough, man. He was Jesus meek and mild? Yeah, no. he was not always meek and mild. Anyway, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. You know, how could you know Abraham? He, well, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And then they picked up stones to stone him because he's claiming to be Yahweh there. He's quoting from Exodus 3.14, the burning bush, when God appeared to Charlton Heston. You remember <laughs> that. When God appeared to Moses and Moses says, who should I tell the Israelites you are? And God says, tell them I am sends you the self-existent eternal one, the being that will have no beginning, the being that will have no end, the being that just bees, the, the being that Aristotle conceived of as the unmoved mover, the, the uncaused cause of all things that exist. Jesus is claiming to be that being. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. But you are, it seems to me, you're correct, uh, Ryan, and we talk about this, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, that if he had claimed too early that he was God in that form, he wouldn't have completed his mission of atonement. In fact, they may not have, you don't know how it would have gone. It's a counterfactual, right? Yeah, you don't know. They may not have killed him. Or they may have killed him right right away. That, that's just it. The other yeah. thing is if he fails to be the deliverer that they're expecting, uh-huh. because there were, there were many messianic pretenders is what they're called. Mm-hmm. And in, in some cases, they were actually killed because they couldn't demonstrate that they were who they said they were. Oh. And, you know, John 8 is a good example. If Jesus comes out and says, I am, mm-hmm. and they don't believe him, they're immediately picking up stones to kill him. And so right there, you see, this is exactly why mm-hmm. he can't go around saying, you know, I'm God right away because they're either going to try to put him on a military pedestal or they're going to try to kill him. 
Now, you've presented this on college campuses. What kind of response do you get when you present this self-identity of Jesus? Are students intrigued? Are they objecting? What are they doing? They are. And I think it's because a lot of times people don't tend to talk about this. Mm -hmm. There's sort of a implicit assumption among Christians that, of course, Jesus claimed to be God because we go and sing songs about him every Sunday morning right. at church. And, right. you know, that's kind of the whole program. Mm -hmm. So it's taken for granted among a lot of evangelicals that, of course, Jesus claimed to be God. Um, and so it's really been more isolated to the academic community to investigate this question of the historical Jesus and who he actually thought that he was, whether he claimed to be God, whether he claimed to be the Messiah. And so, you know, I didn't know the first time that I gave this, this presentation, it's something that interests me a lot, but I, I wasn't sure how it would be received. But to my surprise, uh, people find it very intriguing because it's not something that a lot of people are talking about, mm. at least not at the popular level. Mm. I always ask audiences, and you can ask this of Jehovah's Witnesses if they come to your door because they don't think Jesus was God. You could simply ask them, if Jesus never claimed to be God, why did they kill him? I and mean, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, you don't get killed for skipping around saying, love your neighbor, right? Love your neighbor. You must die. No, that, <laughs> right. that doesn't get you killed. What gets you killed is claiming to be God because that's blasphemy to the Jews and it's addition to the Romans. Exactly. Now, when we come back from the break, Ryan, I want to ask, uh, you, we'll get into the son of God uh, title, but I also want to ask, what evidence do we have that the early Christians from the very beginning thought Jesus was God. In other words, this was not a late development as some scholars try and say, oh, John is way late. So they didn't think he was God. They made him to be God much later. We'll get into that. I'm talking to Ryan Cruz, board member at crossexamine.org and also campus speaker. I'm Frank Turek. Our website, crossexamine.org. We're back in two minutes. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. And this is where I often say that the Word of God is not meant merely to be consumed. The question is not how many scripture you can retain. The question is how much scripture can you use? Now, I thoroughly enjoy the Hamilton Corner. It's a bright light, just a priceless information, and God's Word is so needed. Tune in to the Hamilton Corner, weekday afternoons at 5 Central on American Family Radio. To sharpen the biblical worldview of Christians and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the mission of the Christian Worldview Radio Program. I'm host David Wheaton, inviting you to join us this Saturday morning at 9 Eastern, 8 Central, as we discuss all matters of life and faith from a decidedly biblical perspective. The Christian Worldview, Saturday mornings at 9 Eastern, 8 Central, right here on American Family Radio. There's nothing more destructive to your relationship with your child than constant lecturing. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Whenever conflict occurs, if your knee-jerk reaction is to lecture, you're communicating that you don't think your teen can think for himself. And if you condemn him for his mistakes, 
you're actually reinforcing that you don't really respect him. That's not your intent, but it's what your child is hearing. So what can be done? Well, stop lecturing and start listening. In fact, start today. Try it for a day. Don't flip out, argue, or lecture. It'll take a lot of discipline on your part, but you may discover it's just what your teen needs. Before long, your teen will return the favor and start listening to you. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. If you're low on the FM dial looking for National Public Radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. You are not going to hear this topic on National Public Radio, that Jesus really was God, did self-identify as God, and that his divine attributes were clearly seen from the beginning by the believers. You're not going to hear that there. Stay right here. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. My guest is Ryan Cruz, who is two years out of Baylor University. He's about to go to Dallas Theological Seminary, actually. And uh, Brian, I know you've taken the course from Dan Wallace, the textual criticism course that we are running here uh, at uh, crossexamine.org. If you go to crossexamine.org and click on online Christian courses, you'll see it there, are online courses. And um, Dan is one of the top manuscript scholars in the world. In fact, he is actually... Pho- digitally photographing every single possible manuscript that he can get in front of, and there are thousands of them with an organization that he's developed. He has debated Bart Ehrman, and uh, this course that you took on textual criticism, which our listeners right now can take as well, uh, 10 days from now it begins, January 20th. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online Christian courses. What did you learn in that course with Dan Wallace? Oh, all kinds of things. Yeah. So when it comes to a lot of these fields, you know, textual criticism uh-huh. and historical Jesus and things like that. You know, these are things that those who have the time to go to seminary and to really study under the best guys like Dan Wallace mm-hmm. and Dr. Daryl Bach and Gary Habermas and others, mm-hmm. you know, you go in, in depth on these things, but it's, it's hard for those of us in the professional community who don't necessarily have time to go to seminary. You know, how do you get access to that kind of material? And so that's why these online courses mm-hmm. are great. I mean, you know, as Dr. Wallace will tell you, uh, you're really just touching the tip of the tip of the iceberg of textual criticism, mm-hmm. but you still learn so much and you know plenty enough to be dangerous. But you go into um, the different types of, of manuscripts and text types, and he'll explain in, in the mm-hmm. course why that's important and how they go about determining the authentic reading. If you uh, have a, a passage where there's multiple different variants, it could go one way or it could go mm-hmm. the other. Uh, he'll teach you the methods that scholars employ to figure out, okay, what was the scribe likely likely to have copied? What would the author have been likely to write in the first place right. in the context of the rest of the, the text? Um, it's a great course. I learned so much. And honestly, a lot of my uh, propulsion to continue uh-huh. in my studies comes from these kinds of situations where you get the tip of the tip of the iceberg and then you decide that's not enough. I want to go more. I want to know more. Yeah, and Bart Ehrman has said there are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Now, that sounds like, oh, are you kidding me? Wow, well, there's no way we could figure out what the original New Testament said. If you want to know how to answer that, you need to take this course by Dan Wallace. Again, go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. Uh, Dan is sort of like an Indiana Jones type when it comes to manuscripts. He's 
traveling all over the world, climbing ropes into monasteries to try and discover these obscure manuscripts that people haven't seen in centuries and then photographing them so they'll they'll be uh, cataloged in, in history forever because these manuscripts ultimately, as you know, degrade, written on papyrus and animal skins and that kind of thing. And so if you want to really know about how we can be sure that the text we have in the New Testament is reliable from a manuscript perspective, you need to take this course and uh, you've already taken it. I've, I've seen some of it myself and it's, it's just wonderful. Uh, let's go back to our topic now, Ryan. We're talking about uh, the self-identity of Jesus. Uh, before we get into that, though, there's been some uh, more liberal scholars saying, you know, the divinity of Christ is a late development among the believers. Uh, Jesus didn't think he was God. We've already shown why that's not true. He did think he was God, but uh, they're trying to say it was a late development. Why are they wrong? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. We mentioned earlier in a kind of offhand kind of way that a lot of scholars will say that John was actually mm -hmm. written in the early second century. Mm -hmm. And the reason they say that is because of the high Christology mm -hmm. in John. They think there's no way this could have been part of the early Christian tradition because the Christology is too high. So how do we combat that? Well, we, we certainly can. Um, if nothing else, the Apostle Paul, we know when he wrote his letters uh, to some degree yes. to the, the churches around Galatia and Greece and Asia Minor. Certainly First Corinthians, even, exactly. even skeptics like Ehrman, who are, he considers himself an atheist now. He's certain that Paul, say, wrote First Corinthians in 55 or 56 AD. He can, exactly. And, and we know this from an archaeological discovery in Delphi. We, we, can, we, can, we can pinpoint when Paul wrote. Exactly. Okay, continue. Exactly. And we know that Paul had a high Christology. Mm -hmm. You get it in his letters. And so, you know, at that point, you're only 20 years removed, which mm -hmm. isn't that much, but we can do better than that because the Paul who wrote those letters is the same Paul who had an experience on the road to Damascus where he believed he saw a vision of the risen Christ and his life was forever changed. Mm. Uh, Paul never changed in the sense that he, before the event, was an ardent follower of Yahweh and after the event was an ardent follower of Yahweh. But what changed is his understanding of who the Messiah was and who Jesus was mm -hmm. in the program of God. And so, you know, Paul had this experience shortly after Jesus' crucifixion and alleged resurrection. And so now all of a sudden you're right back to the event itself. But even before that, Paul was a persecutor of the church. And the reason that he was persecuting them is because he believed that they were committing blasphemy and standing in the way of Yahweh's reunion with his people, Israel, right? Israel had this covenant relationship with God where when they were unfaithful to him, they didn't receive his favor. And they had these series of overlords, as we've talked about already, the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, the Babylonians. And so Paul, belonging to the class of the Pharisees and arguably a zealot, uh, was very passionate about stamping out infidelity mm -hmm. in among the Jewish people. And the Christian way seemed to him to be another instance of this because they were going around committing the highest form was just a man as if he were God himself, mm -hmm. their messianic deliverer. And so Paul had to understand what he was persecuting. And so w by doing that, we've now taken this high Christology all the way back to the event itself. I was just with Gary Habermas a few days ago in New Orleans. There was a, uh, a conference down there put on the, put on by the, the, uh, the Baptist, uh, seminary in New Orleans. Uh, Bob Stewart is, uh, 
the man who organizes it, a uh, faculty member there, great guy. And he had uh, Gary Habermas, myself, Tim McGrew, Richard Howe, several others down there. And uh, Gary is in the middle, not in the middle, he's toward the end now, of his magnum opus. And it's near 5,000 pages now. <laughs> Gary's amazing. And uh, I, he was talking about his minimal facts approach. And I said, he said, I've boiled it down to six minimal facts. And one of the minimal facts was, now when we say minimal facts, what we mean is 90% or more of scholars, whether they're Christians, atheists, anywhere in between, New Testament scholars agree with these facts. And one of the facts that uh, Gary talks about that these, even these other scholars agree with is that all of this all of the idea that Jesus had resurrected from the dead and the idea that uh, Jesus' uh, followers thought he had risen from the dead and had appeared to them, all this occurred early. Early is one of the facts now, one of the minimal facts. Right. And what do we mean by early? Even Bart Ehrman is saying it's within months, if not sooner, of the alleged resurrection itself. They're thinking he is a divine being very, very early. Right. And if Paul is writing about communion in first Corinthians and he's quoting Luke to do so, uh, they, and there's controversy over some issues, obviously in first Corinthians, the church is well established by 55 AD and they're doing communion. Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Well, they're doing communion. Uh, they're thinking that Jesus is divine. Yeah. Yeah. I like what there's a church historian by the name of Garoslav Pelican. What a name. Right? Oh, Pelican. Yeah. I've yeah. got some of his works up here. And actually. he, yeah. uh, he points out that the oldest sermon, the mm-hmm. oldest account of a Christian martyr, the oldest pagan report of the church and the oldest mm-hmm. liturgical prayer, which you've just referenced in first Corinthians, they all agree with that. Jesus was regarded as the redeemer and God himself. Hmm. Very early, very early. And you were just reading from uh, Reasonable Faith. I was, yes. I've heard of that book. <laughs> Reasonable it's a good Faith one. It's by a good one. Dr. William Lane Craig. Yeah, you can't go wrong by listening to Dr. Craig, reasonablefaith.org. So, okay, this is all early, despite the fact that some liberal scholars are trying to say this is a late development. It's not a late development, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so we know that Jesus is God by his I am statement. That's one of like six other or seven other I am statements, the one we talked about in John 8. Uh, certainly his reference to him being the son of man, which goes back to uh, Daniel chapter seven, that uh, he is claiming to be a divine being. And everybody standing around him when he said that knew what he was claiming. That's why they killed him. They ripped their clothes and said blasphemy. They wanted to stone him. What about the son of God term or son of God uh, title that uh, he's he's given? What, what does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. So. What, yeah, what did Jesus mean by the son of God? Now, there are some other figures in the Old Testament that were regarded as sons of God. Mm-hmm. Solomon uh, is referred to in this way in Second uh, Samuel, mm-hmm. when David wants to build a temple for God and God tells him, no, you know, your son will be the one who will build a house for me. And later this passage in Second Samuel came to be interpreted in a messianic sense. But, you know, there are others that are called son of God. Mm-hmm. And so by Jesus saying he's the son of God, he doesn't, that doesn't automatically mean that he is divine, but Mm -hmm. you can tell by the way that he uses it. He's talking about something a little bit different. Um, Let's go to, um, 
to one of the Jesus parables in Luke 20. Mm. Uh, Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard, mm. and I'll, I'll read it real quickly here. He said that a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent servants to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, his beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, that being his son, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and this inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees. And what he's doing here is this is a reference to Isaiah 5. And in Isaiah, it's clear who's being talked about here. This vineyard is meant to symbolize the nation of Israel. And the servants that are sent are God's prophets, Elijah, Isaiah, you know, so on and so forth. And then you get down to this son, and in the parable, right, in this symbol, the son is truly the son of the owner of the vineyard in a filial sense. It's not just another delegate of right. his. There's a different, unique kind of relationship there. And you can tell that, too, because when the tenants say that they're going to kill the son, they say, you know, when we do this, the inheritance will belong to us, implying that the inheritance, the nation of Israel, the whole world, belongs to this unique son figure. Jesus clearly identifying with the son in this passage is expressing a more unique relationship than Solomon or anybody else ever could. And he did so in some other parables as well. And after the break, we'll get into that. We're talking about who did Jesus think he was? What did he really think he was divine? Uh, and my guest is Ryan Cruz, a board member here at crossexamine.org and also obviously an intelligent young man who just came out of Baylor University and is helping us reach other students for Christ. We're back in a couple minutes. Don't go away. Ladies and gentlemen, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. If you like what we do, would you please consider going to crossexamined.org and giving us a tax-deductible donation? 100% of your donations will go to ministry, 0% to buildings. Thanks so much. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and I Don't Have Enough Faith to Believe that Jesus Didn't Claim to Be God. Uh, that's the topic we're talking about here today. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist on the American Family Radio Network and the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. My guest, Ryan Cruz, C-R-E-W-S who is fresh out of college. And if we had all college students come out with the knowledge that uh, Ryan has, of course, he's more self-taught than he is getting that from Baylor <laughs> University, but um, we'd be okay. But friends, it's not like that on the college campus. Most college campuses are very hostile to Christianity. They don't get the kind of teaching they should get. And that's unfortunately one of the reasons we exist, crossexamine.org. Before I forget, I want to thank those of you who have donated to us in 2019. You really helped us out quite a bit. We're going to have a... God willing, Lord willing, a great year because of the fuel that you've given us to go to these campuses and not worry about finances. When we go to a college campus, we don't charge the students a dime. There's no admission fee, none of that. We're there to provide the evidence that Christianity is true and to take questions. And we can do that because you provide us with the finances we need to make it happen. So thank you so much for that. Now, Ryan, just before the break, we were talking about... Um, the idea that in the parable in Luke 
20, uh, that Jesus is in some way claiming to be God. Why don't you wrap up that thought there? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we were discussing right before the break mm-hmm. how in this parable, there's one, the son, who is the uh, the inheritance mm-hmm. of the vineyard belongs to him. He's the, the owner's son, and we mm-hmm. know the owner is meant to be God. Uh, the vineyard owner is a symbol for God in Isaiah 5. And Jesus is clearly identifying with this unique son figure, mm-hmm. right? And you can tell that from other passages, too. If we hop over to Matthew 11, mm-hmm. Jesus said that all things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father Mm -hmm. and no one knows the father except the son and whom the son chooses to reveal him to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And this is interesting because it's not like no one ever thought of God as a father before, but Jesus is clearly identifying a unique filial exclusive relationship between him and Yahweh Mm -hmm. that is not characteristic uh, of the rest of the nation. Right. He's saying, you know, I'm the only one who can reveal the father to you. Well, that's kind of a narrow, objectionable statement if Jesus isn't, in fact, divine himself. You can tell from Jesus' prayer life, he calls uh, the Father Abba, which is this very informal, uh, you know, term for a father or a son to use with a father. Um, And so you can tell that his relationship, his understanding of how him and Yahweh are related to one another is very unique. It's not like the rest of the nation just thinking of God in general as a father. It's much more exclusive. Tim Keller brought up a very interesting point with regard to Jesus's address to the father. Most of the time he's talking to his father, as you say, Abba, father or father. But when he was on the cross... He didn't use that term. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the time he was most alone. He felt, and as a man, that God, at least judicially, had forsaken him because he was innocent, yet he was going to the cross to take our punishment on himself, not his own. Why have you forsaken me? Now, he volunteered to do that. But there wasn't that intimate relationship in his expression at that time. That's the only time we see him saying that he's yeah. on the cross. I'm just going to read some some of the things Jesus said, ladies and gentlemen. And as I read these statements of Jesus, see if this sounds like just a man could have said these things. Before Abraham was born, I am. Your sins are forgiven. I and the Father are one. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. I am the bread of life. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Pray in my name. Father, glorify me with the glory I had before the world began. Does that sound like just a man? Not really. No, not really. Can you imagine anyone saying that? Any of those things. Well, and that's why I like what C.S. Lewis had to say about it Mm -hmm. in Christianity. Lewis put up the the famous trilemma where he said that given those kinds of things, the Mm -hmm. things that Jesus said, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord, Mm -hmm. as he claimed. Because there's there's no other way that you can say those kinds of things and just be a normal, average, everyday person. You're either crazy, (laughs) you're selling something, or you're God. (laughs) Well, Lewis was so good at... uh, at putting things that maybe we should find that quote and read it because it was just so, so well said, but 
Here is another way that Jesus, I think, claimed to be God. You pointed out in that one parable in Luke 20, but I'd love to go to uh, Luke chapter 15, because if you go to Luke chapter 15, Jesus is being observed by the Pharisees. And here's what it says. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Okay, stop right here. You got to see the context here. What's the context? Jesus is being criticized for meeting with sinners and ministering to sinners. And then he tells them a parable. In fact, he tells them three parables in a row. He tells them the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Actually, lost sons. They're both lost in the parable of the lost son. And in each of these parables, the uh, figure who represents Jesus goes out and finds something that is lost. So he goes out to find the lost sheep. He goes out to find the lost coin. He goes out to find the lost son. He runs to the son, right? He's going out to find what is lost, what God does. And so when Jesus responds to the Pharisees who are criticizing Jesus for ministering to sinners, he tells them three parables to show them that he is doing exactly what God does. He goes and finds what is lost. So he's claiming to be the God figure in these parables. In fact, whenever you look at a parable, ladies and gentlemen, realize there are at least two characters in the parable. There's God and then there's you in the parable. Now, there may be a third uh, group of people in, in, in this particular group of people, or I should say in this particular parable, particularly the lost son, the third group of people are the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees represented by? They're represented by the older brother who stays home and thinks he's good with God because, or good with the father because he's obeying everything the father wants him to do. In other words, he's going to earn his way to his father's favor by doing good works. And Jesus points out they're both lost. The Pharisees are lost and the sinners are lost. The people who... Uh, stay home and help the father and the prodigal son. They're both lost. They need the grace of the father. So Jesus is claiming to be God through the parables. He is. And let's, I want to run with something else that you kind of alluded to there. So you mentioned Jesus fellowship with sinners as something that was criticized. And that's really interesting because another way that we know Jesus had a divine self identity Mm -hmm. is by his relationship with sinners, namely that he forgave sin in Mark chapter two. Everybody I hope is familiar with the story where there's a paralytic who um, his friends want to bring him to Jesus with a crowd outside the house is too large. And so they can't get there. So Mm -hmm. they go up to the roof, they take off some of the roofing and they lower the man down on a pallet. And and I'm going to read now from Mark. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there. The scribes belong to a similar class as the Pharisees, right? These teachers of the law. And they were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive, but who can forgive sins, but God alone. And that's exactly the point. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they questioned this within themselves said to them, why you question these things, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, pick up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Mm. And that's the whole point. Jesus ability to forgive sins at all, to be in that position, he is arrogating to himself divine authority. 
Jesus claimed to be God in many ways. These are just some of the ways we're talking about. And actually, if you look at those first chapters of Mark, Mark portrays Jesus as God as well. In fact, if you look at Mark chapter uh, one, Jesus or John prepares the way of the Lord. That's Yahweh. Uh, and uh, Jesus, in this case, is Yahweh in Mark chapter one, verse three. A uh, little later, the father calls Jesus his beloved son in Mark chapter one. Evil spirits recognize Jesus and obey him. That's Mark chapter one. In Mark chapter two, Jesus forgives sins. That's just a passage you just talked about, Ryan. A little bit later in that chapter, he claims to be the divine son of man. We've already been through that. He claims to be Lord of the Sabbath in 228. How can he be Lord of the Sabbath if he's just a man? He heals diseases and drives out demons in Mark chapter three. In Mark chapter four, he demonstrates his power over nature. Uh, and then once you get to the passage, we might as well end with the passage we started with. When you get to uh, Mark chapter 14, he affirms he's the Messiah and the son of man. So yeah. it's even Mark has shown by how Jesus behaves that he's God. Exactly. Not just in what he says. Right. And that is really important. Uh, Jesus' actions are equally as important as his sayings mm -hmm. and demonstrating who he is. And another quick point to make is that, you know, it's important that we see all these things in Mark, because according to the most critical liberal scholarship, Mark is the favored gospel. And it's the earliest, yeah. It, because it's believed to be the earliest and to some degree a source for some of the others. Uh -huh. And so... Seeing these things in Mark, in this favored gospel by critical scholars, that should give us some confidence that yeah. it, it's there in the in the one that is most beloved. Right, right. I'm just going to end, end with C.S. Lewis's quote because it's so good in Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish things that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would rather be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Ryan Cruz. Thanks for doing this show, man. You're doing great. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Great insights. That's Ryan Cruz. He's on the board of crossexamine.org. He's also a fine gentleman that is out doing presentations on college campuses like this. So check him out. Also check out the online course with Dan Wallace. Go to crossexamine.org. Click on online courses. You'll see it there. Be back here next week. God bless. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.